If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and on today's podcast, you'll hear a conversation I had earlier this year with historians Emma Wells and Estelle Peronk about the connections and tensions between the church and state in Tudor England as well as the role that Tudor monarchs played in setting the country's religious agenda. Emma is an ecclesiastical and architectural historian at the University of York, and Estelle is a lecturer in early modern history at the New College of the Humanities. We met in London, and the first interviewee you'll hear is Emma Wells. So, actually, to kick us off, um, we're talking today about the Tudor church and state, so I wonder whether you could tell us just how important the church was in the Tudor era. Yeah, well, I suppose that's... That's, that's a question for that's you. That's my field, yes. Well, um, prior to the what we term as the Reformation, the church was, I suppose, the single most dominant institution within, I suppose, medieval medieval people's lives. It, it ran the show, as it were. You had... Two, the two different strands of the church, so you had the secular church and you had the regular church. So your secular church is your parish churches, you know, that everyone attends, your regular churchgoer, and they provided your sacraments, so your, you know, birth, marriages and deaths. And, and then you had your regular church, um, which comes from the Latin from rule, and they followed a, a rule. So the Benedictine rule is the most common rule of St. Benedict. And then your monasteries, essentially, so they take a vow of whatever it might be. Um, but I think what's quite interesting as well to note is although the church um, encompassed everything, I suppose it was every part of lives, I mean, it did dictate the calendars, you know, when one would harvest, you know, when one would bring the crops in, those mm. sorts of things, when one would farm, um, and the different types of rituals, people didn't actually go to church every... I think we think they went to church every single day, and they didn't. They didn't even just attend on a Sunday. I mean, the, there's so many, um, in the documentary records and accounts, you see there's so many priests moaning because people are larking around in their diocese. You know, what are you doing on a Sunday? You're playing football. You know, it's, it's really, there are people playing football um, on a Sunday. So actually what we find is there's a lot of evidence of people just going for the religious festivals, you know, the saints days, the religious festivals. Yes, a, quite a few did go on a Sunday, but I think it's actually a little bit similar to perhaps what we found in, I don't know, the 60s, 70s England, rather than that very, very dominant church-going, mm. you know, regular occurrence that we, we tend to think of. So to circle right back round to the beginning of Henry's initial break with Rome, which kicked off the English Reformation, <laughs> what did that look like, um, both in terms of Henry's policy and in terms of that Reformation meant for people on the ground. I should probably say before we continue that the Reformation, it's a simple point, but the Reformation is not one single cataclysmic, catastrophic event. 
I think many people do think the break with Rome occurred or the dissolution of the monasteries occurred and that's the Reformation and it's not. There's the Henrician Reformation, the Edwardine or Edwardian, however you want to say it, Reformation. It's a full period, it's 16th century. I would say it's Reformations. You have mm -hmm. several, it's a series of culminating events mm -hmm. um, that ends up with the church changing from traditional Catholicism to full-on Protestantism, I suppose. And in between, a lot of back and forth. So I think that's that's a point to make, that it's we never have just one thing happening. Mm -hmm. um, so we begin in the 1530s with Henry VIII's policy, policy saying, there's no, we're not allowed pilgrimage, we're not allowed relics, we're not allowed reliquary shrines. So everything that was very important, pertinent, significant to the medieval man and woman, um, to their belief system. So, you know, they went into their local church and they would worship at images, at shrines. That was their way of connecting with the divine through the intercessory power, as we call it. Um, and the reason being for Henry was that these were classed as feigned images. So, you know, the false images, I suppose. Um, and it was because it wasn't so much the images themselves, but it was because in the medieval era, there was a reciprocal relationship between the image and the viewer. So it was felt that these images could affect the viewer and that's how you would sort of connect with God, connect with Christ. So it, they actually had a power, the images had a power to affect you personally. And it was this power that Henry didn't want to occur. And he felt that if you were worshipping these images, you were worshipping something false, you were worshipping this false power. And again, in the 1538 injunctions, we get kissing and licking of relics, you're not allowed to do that. It's this, it's this physical, tangible, you shouldn't be worshipping something like that. You should simply be worshipping God and Christ rather than anything in between. In terms of the, how we see it in the parishes, I'll just quickly move on to that. It becomes quite interesting because we see sort of stained glass and things rather than we all think, oh, all the, all the windows went and all the wall paintings were whitewashed completely. And they weren't. For example, um, St. Peter Ringland in Norfolk, you'll see images with just the eyes completely removed with plain glass mm. and the lead around them. So you just have this strip of white across the eyes or you have some figures which just have a white face and you have some fonts that were defaced of the hands and the um, faces as well. The same with uh, rude screens as well. well. I'll come on to that later. But we all have seen those images of screens with the scratched out faces. And, and it's because that the hands and the face and the eyes were where this power to affect the observer, to affect the worshipper derived where it came from. So you had to scratch it out. You had to get rid of it. All this religious change obviously had a massive impact on England's relationship with the continent. Was England a pariah state and how did religious change there impact diplomacy with Europe? Uh, there's some uh, important points to make, I think. I think the first one is to just state that uh, Henry VIII was a very strong Catholic. In his youth, mm. he was actually um, the defender of the faith uh, in 1521 uh, when, you know, to, against Martin Luther and his thesis. So I think he, he, there, there's this almost a competition, if we're going to talk about England and Europe, between Francis I and Henry VIII. And I would really focus on Henry VIII and Francis I of France. And where there is a very strong competition to be the most powerful mm. king, but also the most Catholic. So when, when Henry VIII, you know, broke with Rome, for Francis I, it's almost an opportunity. But what's really interesting to notice as well, 
there's no Reformation in France in the 16th century. France is affected by Reformations all over Europe, by Switzerland, by the German countries, by what's happening in England, but there's no Reformation in the country, as that obviously we, we're going to have religious um, civil wars in France. Okay, so that's, I think that's one important, like we have a competition. So how does the Reformation really affect the relationship or foreign relations? Was it gave like a spin into the rivalry between two different and at the same time very similar personalities? Mm. They were both very narcissistic. <laughs> they wanted to be the best. They wanted to be this, you know, they wanted to have all the women. They want like, let's face it, you know, they were really competing with one another for that. Now, if we move on to Elizabeth I, in 1570, Elizabeth was excommunicated mm-hmm. and she's basically writing letters to um, the European kings and rulers saying, I need you to tell me you're still on my side. I need you. I, I, we are monarchs. And if we can just be excommunicated like that by the Pope. So what does it mean about her power? And... It didn't change, you know, in 1570, you would think that her relationship changed with the French. Actually, no, it's when it became even harder, like in terms of marriage negotiations. And it lasted, like, French marriage negotiations lasted for 20 years with three suitors. I mean, it's unbelievable. I love that period. And I think this is how really, um, it's interesting to see how the church and the state, religion, foreign relations are actually... You, exactly. What I was, yeah, I was going to say, I bring up you, just your point about going back to Henry. Yeah. Um, you made the point about it him being such a Catholic king as yes, well. Yes. And him sort of asserting his role within within Europe at that point. And it's it's interesting because although we think of the Henrician Reformation as, as the Reformation, though actually he didn't change a lot. He exactly. didn't bring in much yeah. altering policy exactly. that have therefore affected the country. Exactly. Edward exactly. reinforces, exactly. you know, he comes in and says, let's not beat around the bush here. Or, or, or is it Edward? Him. You know, like, we can even discuss that a bit because, like, I think well, there's, there's two trends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's two trends of historiography, right? Like, one day, Edward is, like, the puppet king and oh, yeah, Edward is, like, much more in charge than what we think is, you know, and I think it's also interesting to see, you know, when I said the personalities of monarchs, I think it really plays in. Well, he was only a child. So a lot of people say that um, Edward was the the strictest, most yeah. Protestant yeah. Tudor monarch, but as you just mentioned, he was a boy king. So what's your opinion on, it, well, on both of you? I mean, when, when he comes to the throne, so the injunctions of 1547 actually, regardless of, will come on to regardless of who's making that policy but the I, I would say the gloves are off he kind of he kind of says he clarifies anything that was not um anything that was inconsistent i think in henry's reign so we have now imagery is entirely obliterated it's it's no, no longer really um oh it's feigned images it's whatever it's no let's get rid of imagery in, entirely mm. and now it is the word is supreme the word of god is the only relic mm-hmm. is you know is the last relic on earth that's it no no images at all and then as we as we noted before in 1549 we have Cranmer's book of common prayer so for the first time mm-hmm. well Although Henry did instill a vernacular yes, prayer book. Yes, yes. But for the first time, we have an English book of common prayer. And most importantly, um, it was it was in the in the parishes. 
Coming up next on the History Extra podcast. We have so many different faiths as well. Yeah. No dominant faith really any, anymore. So you can see how it has shaped our history to now. So would you argue that in under Henry, the Reformation was more about political power and him regaining political power, and under Edward, it became about theology and religious practice? I would, I would, I would argue that. I think, he, I think Henry probably put in the framework for Edward to then drive home yeah. the policy. I think we're, we're both going to agree that, obviously, he was very much influenced uh, by, you know, his protectors and by the ones who, like, if, thing, and by though, his yeah. advisors and everything. I think we would we would agree on that. However, I would like to say something about Edward. I think that he's a bit, still, a bit of an obscure figure. Yeah. I think that people are like, oh, but it's because he, he was young. There's not much to say about him. And also because it's such a short reign. But I think, you, me, there's something that really strikes me with Edward it's actually the way he turned his back on his sisters as soon as he became king. And I think it shows you how much this little boy, actually, I think he loved very much power. He wanted and to follow his father's exa- footsteps. Exactly. And yeah. I think also that Henry really believed that he had... He was going to be. Yeah, he was going to be the next, you know, Henry VIII. <laughs> and that his both of his sisters were a bit useless. But at the same time, he was a bit braced by those two. I mean, like, I mean, Mary yeah. was a, mo- a mother figure. Elizabeth was, like, three years older, but she was always yeah. with him. And, like, they, they had an education together. Catherine Parr was an amazing, you know, um, yeah. influence on him. Yet, he's going to turn his back on his sister. And I think it shows you a bit that this little boy, you know, was actually... Also, like... If he had lived longer, I believe he would have been like a second Henry VIII, mm-hmm. but with a you know a spin on like a bit heartless. It, it comes it to me very him. heartless yeah. as a heartless king, um, and I know that it's a bit of uh, you know away from what we're discussing about religious policies. But I think it, it does tell you a lot because I don't think that it's just he, he was a boy, a boy king, as Emma said, and I think that when he removed his sisters from succession, he really knows what he's doing. Mm. And they're not this enough, they're not that enough. Or we look at his range just on religious policies, but we don't really look at him yeah, as a person. You see and, what I mean? And, and we how? have his writings as well. And I'm not sure his... Po- we can't really say for sure his policies was, were his. No. However, if he had lived longer, we would have seen him either going one way or another. Mm. And I think, personally, he would have strengthened everything very Protestant because I think he was borderline, you know, Calvinist. But I do think that personalities of monarchs are actually fascinating when we try to understand these religious policies and how it moved to religion, poli- you know, political yeah. power. And exactly, yeah. exactly. Talking about, Talking about the personality of monarchs um, being so significant, Elizabeth's own personal faith has has been a bit obscure. What's your take on I've that? Read, um, I've read all her prayers, book of prayers. I've, I've read all her poems. i read most of her letters. Not all of them, I could never say. I think mm-hmm. we, you need a lifetime for that. We're never sure. I think I think Elizabeth was a Christian. I think she was, She really strongly believed in God. But personally, as a person, woman, I don't think she really cares. However, there's something that changes. As soon as, like, we have the, the excommunication in 1570, as soon as we have, like, more plots, and with Mary Stuart being such a huge threat, then Elizabeth is, like, pulled back, like, you know what? With Walsingham as well, who's a very hard Puritan, like Protestant Puritan, they're dragging her. And then you see the policies getting harder and harder and harder. I have to say, she's still got mothers to lots of Catholic princesses and prince in, in Europe. And that shows that she's not seen as this 
you know, in a way, this very, uh, at that period of time, you know, like, it's almost you can divide Elizabeth I reign in different parts. Mm. And I think that we can say she was more Protestant than Catholic, I would believe that, but we can't be, we, we can't know for sure. So you think she was radicalised by but the Catholic was, threat? You know what, I think she was actually completely fed up. Because when you see, like, I mean, we have the Throckmorton plot, 1583, 1584, we have Perry plot, 1586, we have Babington plot. When 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 we get to Elizabeth's reign, you've got to remember as well, like, think about how, how many back and forth the parishes have been. It's like the third, yes. third major transformation totally. by the time we get there. So I think, actually, she sort of, in a way, mirrored what her father did. I think, and I think she learnt from what her father did, learnt from what Edward did, and when she first comes to the reign, I think there's a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. But by 1559, mid-1559, you have the Act of Uniformity. Yes. And she brings in the second prayer book, which is the yes. more aligned with Edward's. Yes. So all of this is very interesting, but what's also very interesting about foreign relations, that at 1559, Philip II is like, hmm, or, you know, as soon as Mary the First died you know like he's like maybe i could marry uh, elizabeth yeah and elizabeth by putting maybe the act of uniformity is to tell him could you talk a bit about how protestantism became tied up with ideas of englishness and um the english state in this period now, in terms of the state uh, you know head of the state i think it's really important to notice something in 1566 elizabeth the first gave a speech where she said it would be horrible if uh, the fate should direct the head. So she said that to her members of parliament when they were asking her to marry someone. Mm. Who's the head? Elizabeth. But And who's the feet? The members of parliament. Yeah. And so I think that it, for her, it has always been about being the head of the state and of the church. And this is when you can create some mm. Englishness. And through yeah. her, in a way, because she loved... England. At the same time, she loved Europe and she loved being in, involved in European politics, but she could only do that if she was a strong English queen. Yeah. And she had to, she had to be also in charge of her own church, which she created. And we even see this within the parish church as well, which is so interesting because we saw it a little bit in Henry Edward and Mary's reign, we saw it. But what's really interesting is in 1561, she reinstates, um, or she allows, shall I say, a partition between the chancel and the nave. So it, although previous to that, we kind of had a, a complete meeting place, more of a meeting place, you know, prior to that, the nave was the preserve of the laity, you know, everyone's, mm-hmm. everyone's preserve, everyone's domain. And, you know, every man and woman would take care of the nave. They've paid for it, you know, they looked after the nave. The chancel was the clergy's domain. You wouldn't pass your, the screen that separated the two. Mm-hmm. And that would, that was called the rude screen. It was essentially a timber screen. And above that you had the rude, which was um, a figural image of the crucifixion, Mary and St. John the Evangelist. And then above that, there's usually a sort of just a wall, we'll call it the wall, but it's a tympanum. And there would be an image often facing the congregation of um, the doom. And the doom is essentially the gates, the mouths of hell. So don't do bad things or you will end up in this state. <laughs> so it was a warning really. And what happens is she, she allows the screen to go back, which is separating the two. 
But what she does is the rude never, the rude isn't there. The rude doesn't mm-hmm. go back. We get rid of the rude Henry's, you know, mm-hmm. Edwards. That's fine. That's gone. But what she does is she says, let's have a convenient crest, she calls it, 1561, convenient crest, which is the royal arms. So she puts her coat of arms in the place of the doom painting, in the place where the rude was as well. And so she's displaying now. So we go from essentially a focus, the congregation is now focused from what was the glorious company of heaven to now God's representative on earth. Yes. So we've gone from church to state, really. Yes. In in visual terms, and I think it's really powerful. It's extre- extremely powerful way of doing it. It's it's, lit- it's there in literal terms, in visual yeah. terms as well. And and so it comes down to the fact that yeah, Elizabeth, like you know, um, religion is quite really hard to assess. But I think we can we can kind of agree as well that she was obviously really much about power and how to assert this power in Europe over Europe. Mm-hmm. And I think it's quite interesting as well to, I think not many people know that, but Elizabeth was um, developing in the, in 15, from 1585 to 1589, um, she was developing a strong friendship, but it's a secret friendship with Henry III of France, who was a strong, very strong Catholic. And so I think it's just fascinating that at some point, you know, it's, it's really about state, because if you can make you know, alliances with people with different, you know, faith. Yeah. You've, you've got it all, really, haven't you? You've got it all. And at the end, it doesn't really matter, does it? No. As long as you have, you're the head of your state. So do you think we can credit Elizabeth I with cementing Protestantism in England? <laughs> I know she'll say yes. <laughs> I, mm, I don't think we can credit any single Tudor monarch. It's a combination of it's, all of them. I think it, that's why, and that's why there's no, there should even, be no single reformation term. Even Mary, Mary, well, yeah, because, because if she what, hadn't switched back, would people would have had open arms to Protestantism? I mean, just think how much money. <laughs> you know, I mean, a stained glass window even now costs an absolute fortune. It really does. But just think, if if you had to change your windows, your images, no, but it's true. If you had to change your windows, your Such images, your point. shrines, your corbels, you know, your every single part of the church. And I think what people do forget is a point I didn't make actually earlier was. In the midi, the midi, if we call it the medieval church or pre-Reformation church, um, churches were filled to the brim with paraphernalia, um, you know, imagery, colour, you know, that they were painted, you know, these mm-hmm. big illustrious painted mm-hmm. um, edifices. And it, yes, I, I don't argue that they could therefore go to a very asensorial austere church. They don't because we, we, it's not possible. And you see some parishes being. Uh, welcoming things, you know, the injunctions come in and they mm. buy a new Bible. The injunctions come in, they get rid of the root or what this, that, and the other. And then down the road, they've done nothing and they're not doing anything or they'll hide the root or whatever. Yeah. But it doesn't, I don't think that necessarily means, I don't think um, implementation also meant compliance, mm, which yeah, is another one. You see from region to region to region, things happen entirely differently. What was the lasting impact of this? How did all the upheaval of this period shape England? I would say it's it set up England a bit apart from the rest of Europe. The Church of England. I mean, the Anglican Church is is 
an institution itself yes. you know yes. it's it's there aren't there isn't really anything like it and we created this these huge institutions that derive from our country that's what i'm yes yes but yeah. you were still i think it's still really important to understand that even the church of england if it was an institution and in, you know strong in itself and you know somewhere uh, else it, i mean it's really important to understand that it was still a response to what was happening in europe oh, it's yeah, right. just very interesting as well the influence and in how all the countries are so much intertwined the history of all the countries are so much intertwined with one another and and when you try to separate them it's like it don't they don't make sense in, by themselves really we have so many different faiths as well yeah no dominant faith really any anymore so you can see how it has shaped our history to now that was emma wells and estelle peronk if you're interested in more podcasts and articles on Tudor history and a range of other historical topics, head to our website, historyextra.com. There you can also find out more about our history weekends, which are taking place in Winchester and Chester in October and November this year. Go to historyextra.com forward slash events for speaker lineups and ticket details. Thanks for listening to today's podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when we'll be talking to James Holland for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.